I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. One of my rituals when I go to the cinema, remember the cinema, the place with the big screen where you sit in the dark next to lots of people and have a collective experience. Well, when I go, I like to sit through all the credits at the end because I'm always amazed at how many people it takes to make something that's 90 minutes long. It's such a vast network of vital interconnecting people. And one of those vital people is a music supervisor. I like to think of them as a DJ or music selector for a movie, but of course it's far more complicated than that. Which is why I have on today's episode, Lucy Bright to tell us more about it. And all the time like that, it's just that balance of the creative and the business, you know, what can we clear? What can we afford? Does it work? Is everyone in love with it? And it's just like a constant back and forth with that. And that will go all the way to the end of the project because of course, um, you know, things get cut or whatever or replaced. You realize that you, you know, you really thought that song would work, but actually when everything else is in context, it doesn't. And so, yeah, it's, it's just got a yeah, balance of numbers and, and creativity. With a degree in history of art, Lucy started out at Mute Records during her gap year. Mute Records represents the likes of Nick Cave, New Order, Depeche Mode and Goldfrapp. She then moved to Warner Classics for six years before leaving to manage acclaimed composer Michael Nyman. He wrote the music for the Oscar-winning film The Piano and the 2018 Alexander McQueen documentary, amongst many others. She was at music publishing company Music Sales for 10 years, overseeing an extraordinary roster of film composers, including Gabriel Yarid, who wrote the music for Cold Mountain and The English Patient, Ludovica Einaudi, Philip Glass, Nico Muley, who wrote the music for The Reader, and Hilda Gudnadottir, the woman who won the Oscar and every award going this year for her scoring of The Joker. This year, Lucy is starting a new venture with the launch of her own publishing company, Bright Notion Music. So I think I'm always looking out like that to, or even if it's, I just, I just read a, a memoir last week and I was like, oh my God, this would make the most amazing film. And I know exactly how I'd want the music to be and the score. And the, so, so I think I, yeah, I look to other people's art for all of that inspiration. We talk about her journey into music supervision, what inspires her, the role of a composer within the context of film, the underrepresentation of female composers in the film industry and the lessons learned along the way. When you choose to become a film composer or you're an artist who decides to accept the commission of being a film composer, the number one thing you have to get over is you are no longer the artist. The artist is the film director, 
and you are there to serve their vision. As you already know, this podcast is about process. So learning an entirely different approach to process is really fun for me. But I'll let Lucy tell you more about that herself. Lucy, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so grateful. It's a pleasure. How are you coping with with lockdown and all the things that you've got to do in the midst of all of this? It's it's really odd. Day by day, it's very different. I mean, basically, I'm really lucky because I can more or less work from home. And um, I've got two television series that luckily had been filmed and mainly edited before the lockdown. So we're just sort of still working on, on those. But I think it's more that missing kissing humans I actually had a dream last night that I hugged someone I was like oh my god <laughs> I know that's <laughs> hard the lack of physical contact is really is really, really hard it is but tell me I always like to start by asking people you know tell us who you are and how did you start you're a music supervisor which I don't think people really know what that is I always thought it was just like you know someone gets to be like a DJ but for TV and film <laughs> But it's a bit more complex than that. So tell us about who you are and how you got started. So um, I am Lucy Bright. I am a music supervisor. I was um, born and grew up in South London and just always been crazy about music. And I was really lucky um, that my parents went to music and um, my two sisters who are kind of 10 and 11 years older than me I'm really into music so I probably heard things maybe a bit earlier than I might otherwise have and had kind of a broader introduction to music and when I was at school um which was amazing school in um in South London James Allen's Girls School and it's really academic but it also really takes the arts seriously so um have an amazing drama department so um sally hawkins and lucy boynton were there and um and a really great music department but weirdly at the time because it was quite sort of classical focused and i really at that point was not interested in classical music at all so my musical life was basically all the kind of outside of school and my best friend penny and i used to just go to gigs all the time so when it came to my gap year, I had a place at, at University College London to read history of art and I knew I was going to take a gap year and I didn't really know what I was going to do in that. Mm-hmm. And I saw an advert in Time Out for a receptionist at Mute Records and um, I applied for it and I got it. And I remember I started like literally like the day after the school had broken up and um and it was kind of amazing it was amazing to you know to get a a job at a record company full stop but specifically mute because because it was independent because it's small but with some really amazing artists I got to see a lot of the business in kind of in one go whereas maybe if I'd gone to a major you'd be literally sitting on reception and wouldn't get to meet anyone or whatever and within about three months um they asked if I wanted to go up to the international department to be kind of assistant there. And, and that was amazing. So I got to sort of work with, with really incredible bands that I loved already, like Nick Cave and Depeche Mode and John Spencer Blues Explosion and all these like, super 
cool bands that I'd always loved. And, um, and I guess just like really get an insight into how the music business worked, which had always seemed kind of mysterious to me. No one in my family worked in that. My dad was an artist, but um, you know, very much from the visual arts background, not, not music. So um, yes, yeah, so I just had this incredible experience. And then when I, because I was going to university in London still, I managed to kind of like stay working in holidays and things at Mute. And, and I'd met this amazing guy called Paul Smith, uh, who had a label called Blast First that went through Mute. And he and I and Sally Bellows um, set up a spoken word label yeah. kind of during that time. So we just got to do loads of really kind of fun and interesting things, meet loads of people kind of before I'd even graduated. Mm. Um, and so when I did graduate and I was like, oh, I actually have to get a proper job. And I started temping at Warner, at Warner Records, at Warner Classics. Yeah. And like I said, I was not interested in classical music at all at this point. Um, but because of the guy that ran Warner Classics, music, um, Matthew Cosgrove, it was just amazing and really spent time. Like, I mean, I think probably looking back, he like wanted to convince me, but, um, but at the time it didn't really feel like that. He did it in such a natural way. And, and what he did was like in my mind classical music was just this big nebulous thing that I had no interest in I mean I knew stuff because my parents listened to it or whatever but and I'd been to concerts but I didn't enjoy it and what I realized is it was like finding those ways in so he would be like okay you really don't like Mozart symphonies but have you listened to these Wagner operas or what about some Schoenberg piano works or whatever like he's like oh you like electronic music so you know you should start listening to Steve Reich or whatever you know those sorts of things where it's like ways in that I hadn't thought of before or been or you know had access to and and I just really kind of fell in love with it and and got to work with the most incredible musicians and composers and you know that's when I first worked with Philip Glass and Steve Reich because we yeah. looked after non-such and um yeah just being like totally introduced to this whole other world of what was you know in the umbrella term classical music and yeah. um an amazing you know amazing cultural figures as well like Daniel Barenboim and um Pierre-Laurent Imar and yeah, and then, and that, I guess, again, was, so, um, George Ligeti, who was one of the composers I worked with, and I was so lucky to work with George, it was kind of towards the end of his life, and, and I then started realising, I know this music, and I know this music because of the Kubrick films, and I'd never thought about, you know, I'd seen those films, I'd loved the music, but I'd never even thought about how those soundtracks came about, or, um, you know, or whether that was the use of existing music like the Ligeti um, or films like Candyman that I'd obviously seen, which Philip Glass had scored. And I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. I'd never even thought about it. Um, so that was definitely my way into, I'd always loved film music, whether that was like the use of songs in film or, or film scores, but I just, it was the first time I'd really thought about the practicalities of it. Yeah. Um, and so I had met Michael Nyman because he was signed to Warner Classics. We put out a few albums of his. And again, I'd always loved his music because I knew the Peter Greenaway films, obviously most famously, The Draftsman's Contract. Yeah. 
and um and so it was a kind of an odd time at, at warner's because it had just been bought the whole company had been bought and sold a couple of times aol had bought and sold it and edgar Brunt from junior had bought it and i'd done my you know sort of six and a half seven years there and it felt like the right time to move on and michael asked me to manage him and so i um i said yes and i kind of didn't even really know what that meant but um i just thought he's interesting you know i always enjoyed talking to him about things musical and beyond because he's you know yeah. he's so knowledgeable about art and film and so um so i went to work with him uh, with him and it just coincided with this time when he was asked to score man on wire the documentary incredible um, documentary <laughs> amazing and james marsh is just such a brilliant brilliant director and a truly lovely man and so i i was um kind of working with him right because it turned out michael couldn't score it write new music for it but what he did was open up his back catalogue and james basically used the existing music to create a new score right and so it was a first, again it was like the first time i team in a very technical way um in the edit room and then there was the music supervisor who's john Bortwood and um obviously james and seeing like that music being put to picture and what works what doesn't and so by meeting john Bortwood, who was also uh head of film and tv at music sales the music publisher who was michael's music publisher um he asked me to then come and work there so that's when i joined music sales and i was there for 10 years working with this incredible roster of composers a lot of everyone from sort of oscar winning gabriel yarrod to um philip glass because i came back with uh, to working with philip again and um and then we signed dustin o'halloran and volker bertelman and hilda goodnadottir and who won the oscar did who she? won the oscar um, this yes yeah. i've forgotten the film the joker that's it yeah so and she's amazing and i you know i was loved i always loved working with her but it was this it, yeah it was a great roster but also john because he music supervised i said oh, i really want to do it too and he's like yeah fine it's great um so when i joined um samantha morton was making her first film as director and i knew samantha she um dated a friend of mine so i met her and really loved her she was super cool and so um so that was the first film that i music supervised on my own and the unloved and um it was just great it was a real kind of baptism of fire in many ways but it was a great experience and she was fab and um kate ogborn the producer's amazing and it was yeah it was just it was great and kind of from then you know it just sort of rolled and i really loved the the editor on that um project and then he went on to do other things i've done with him so it sort of yeah just sort of developed from there so that's how i yeah that's my my route to music supervision because you've obviously got the industry side that you've 
understood because of your journey starting you know at the reception desk at mute all the way to warners but i want to read i just want to quote you back to you um you say my role is to get the director and the producer the soundtrack they want within the budget that they have talk to me a little bit about how that all works and synchronizes together sure so um in my ideal world i come on at script stage and at that point you know the producer basically knows how much money we've got for music and um and so I'll go through the script and first of all, if there are any songs that are actually written into the script and, you know, a classic one will be like, oh, the Beatles are playing in the background of this bar scene. It's like, you haven't got the money for that. So let's start now thinking about what we're actually going to use rather than you in your mind thinking it's going to be, let it be. And, you know, and getting to the point in post where you, everyone's in love with the idea of having that. And I suddenly have to say, you can't afford it. Mm. Um, so that's one of the first things to do. Also to see if there, there's any um, on camera, like either live performances or maybe a member of the cast sings something or sort of picking up all of those, any musical aspect of the script. And then starting to think about the characters and what they might listen to if they listen to it. And whether that's in a way, whether that's going to end up on camera or not, i.e. or, or rather in the production or not, because um, sometimes I'll make a playlist for a character and it's literally just for the actor to listen to, for them to, have, you know, build a part of their character um and maybe nothing will end up in the final film for that right. character but it's it's still an important almost storytelling aspect of the whole um spirit of the film um or there could also be like actually yes you're gonna you know we're gonna make your playlist and you're going to end up listening to these you know, and, and they will be in the final film as, as well. Um, and every director is different, obviously. You know, there are some directors I will work with and Shane Meadows just knows what he wants. That's, he's got such a, kind of huge... Um, he did This Is England, didn't he? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and he just, you know, has a very specific love and knowledge of film and he kind of knows, uh, sorry, of music and he knows what he wants um, and then other directors are more interested in kind of like collaborative ideas or um, you know or maybe they're not particularly musical themselves and they want you know that's what you've got to come and inspire them with mm -hmm. um, so that start on the creative side that's starting kind of at script stage pre-production as well and all the time like that, it's just that balance of the creative and the business, you know, what can we clear? What can we afford? Does it work? Is everyone in love with it? And it's just like a constant back and forth with that. And that will go all the way to the end of the project because of course, um, you know, things get cut or whatever or replaced. You realize that you, you know, you really thought that song would work 
but actually when everything else is in context it doesn't and so yeah it's, it's this kind of yeah balance of numbers and and creativity that's really interesting i i, I never realized that you'll you have to get so embedded in a character that you almost have to to create a pay playlist for a character you really have to get under what you think they're like and i wonder whether that's ever um not contradicted but may, maybe the word is contradicted so say an artist the actor has in their mind a character is like this and then you create music for it and they're like no that character would never listen to that for example it just jars with me how do you sort of navigate all of that and I guess who has the final say <laughs> that's an interesting one because definitely obviously people have different ideas um for me of course it's most satisfying when I come up with something and everyone's really happy with it and I'll, I'll always remember when um I've worked with an amazing writer called Tony Grissoni quite a lot and he did um, a series called Southcliff that we worked on together that Sean Durkin directed and Tony had kind of written in someone was out running and they were listening to music but hadn't specified what and um and I came up with like maybe a bit of a different take on running music you know it wasn't this like sort of high energy thing it was like she was a bit more of a kind of hippie-ish character maybe or like a she was young but she was it she was a bit of a free spirit and I so we had her listening to kind of like Nick Drake and and John Martin and things like that instead. And I remember coming out of the first early screening of that episode and Tony coming up and being like, oh, I was so happy to hear what you gave my character to listen to. That was brilliant. And I was oh, amazing. Couldn't ask for, for more. And then, you know, and then there are other ones like, oh, again, which was with Sean Durkin on his latest project, The Nest, um, which just premiered at Sundance. And when we were working on that um, in 2019, it's set in the early 80s, it's like 83, 84. And the, the actors playing the young characters in it, of course, weren't even born in 83, 84. So one of the reasons I made the playlist for them was like to get into that mood. And, and definitely it happened that, you know, I would give them things and, and then they would maybe go down some of those rabbit holes themselves and be like, oh, but how about this? You know, I've, that because of that, I found this. And, and I think that's great. I, lo I would love that um, interaction and conversation. And, and usually the final say is the director. Um, so we can all give our ideas, but yes, it will be the director unless it's unaffordable or we can't clear it for whatever reason. And then um, obviously, it's, it's a no and we have to think again. I'm really interested to know how you hear and how you see. And the reason I say this is because um, Film obviously is so visual, but I sometimes, I'm, I'm obsessed with film scores. I really, really, really enjoy them. But you know, sometimes like I'll listen to something and think, gosh, that's so heavy handed. Like I'll listen to it and I'll be like, you know, 
um, or I'll listen to like one of my um, one of my favorite directors is Inyaritu. And I always find he just seems to always choose the right composers or Nicholas Brittell um, and um, if Bill Street could talk, um, the music that he writes, that that there's a, a song, I think it's called Agape, that I literally makes me want to cry every single time. It's such beautiful, evocative music. But when you're choosing music, obviously it's within the context of the film, but are you seeing as you're choosing or are you hearing as you're seeing? How does that work? And do you even think about that? Again, it depends at what stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, I think I think about the character first, okay. the character and the story first. Mm-hmm. And um, and obviously, this is more in terms of of choosing songs rather than um, the score. Although I have to say, a lot of composers love to work from script as well. That Gabriel Yarod and Antti Minghella would always work from the script stage together. And a lot of those big themes that end up in the final of English Patient and Cold Mountain, whatever, were written from the script stage. They weren't, Gabriel is, he always says he's not a visual person. He doesn't really write to picture. He's, it's all about the, the story and the characters. Um, so I think I start from that as well. But then obviously as you, uh, go along and as as the shoot progresses and the edit starts to be um, put together and that's when you're starting to work to the picture and you know you are having to put in things mainly when an edit is being put together um, the editor will use a temp score mm-hmm. so uses using either existing songs or existing scores to create a temporary score yeah. So that the the rhythm of the film and and the edit is kind of set, but it's obviously the music is going to be replaced um, by the original score once it's written, and it's a sort of um, it can be very helpful and it can be very difficult as well because um, once people fall in love with things, then with the temp love as we call it, um, yeah. then it has to be replaced, and so. Um, going back to how I when I'm starting to look at it then it's like looking at literally at the images that are coming through and is that the tone of what we thought was going to work actually working to picture because obviously you know that alchemy that works when it does work is is amazing but um but you can also kind of throw things at picture and it just like throws it back straight back off again yeah um so that's the point I would start Yes, working very much visually rather than right. story-wise. Right. And so with the temp versus like the, the, the score that's actually going to be used, you, I know that feeling of, you know, when you've just got something in your head and you're so attached to something, is there ever a situation where the temp score becomes the score? Very much, yeah. I mean, and, and it's kind of a nightmare for the composer. I always feel so sorry for a composer when they've got that situation. But I suppose maybe a quite a recent famous example of it is um, Arrival. And Johan Johansson was scoring it, but the opening and closing had been temped with Max Richter. And in the end, they just ended up licensing the, the Max Richter pieces for the opening and closing. And then Johan's music is obviously all the way, the original music is all the way through. But yes, that does happen quite a lot. 
Yeah, I can imagine. And also there are other scores that you, you hear and you're like, I know exactly what was temped for that because basically you've copied it or, you know, and, and it's really, I don't blame the composer at all. It will be the producer or whatever direct saying closer, closer, go. So, yeah. I see. Gosh, that's fascinating. So tell me a little bit about your relationship with the composer, because obviously your jobs work together, but they are different. So how does that work? Yeah. And again, every project is different sometimes, especially if a, if a composer's worked with that director a lot before um, and they've got their existing relationship. Sometimes I won't get involved at all and basically just kind of leave them to it. And, um, you know, if the composer needs help arranging a recording at the end or whatever I'll just come in and and do that but um or at the other end of the spectrum it could be right from sort of you know suggesting the composer to the director helping to choose the composer and then I think probably the most helpful part of the job is to be is to help the conversation flow between a composer and a director and often you know directors have so much on their plate and you know are thinking about so many different heads of department and and are probably more visual than musical and sometimes find it hard to describe exactly what they want Mm. so a lot of the job can be sort of translating um between the director and the composer to make sure there's nothing sort of lost in translation Right. That's really interesting. So that's another sort of skill like you need to be like the director whisperer or the composer whisperer, you know? Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it. And how, how do you deal with that? Because I, I, the thing is, when people make what they make, we're so sensitive about it. You can't, I don't think you can separate people from their art. I don't think. And I, I think actually, I want to quote something you said a song is somebody else's piece of art and it's their right to choose whether they want to be want the, whether they want it to be in a film and how much they want to charge for it but the the former bit you're saying about a song is somebody else's piece of art the film is somebody's piece of art it's all connected to those people and so people get so passionate and possessive over their babies so you've got this interesting task of knowing how to navigate and translate that which i think is uh, a unique thing because it's not easy it, it's not and, and I have to say that and, and um, saying that about the songs I you know I totally um, stand by that and think that it is is anyone's choice to uh, have their music be used in a film or not when you choose to become a film composer or you're an artist who decides to accept the commission of being a film composer the number one thing you have to get over is you are no longer the artist like the artist is the film director and you are there to serve their vision now they have chosen you because they love the work that you make and um but you are not making an album you know if you're making an album where every decision is your own from you know the songs to the mix to the cover to you know everything in if it is as it should be um but so you have to very quickly get used to notes and um you know and basic and and rejection and and director saying no that's not what i want go back and do it again and i have to say that 
some people can't get past that. And, and I don't think that's good or bad. There's no moral judgment on it at all. But you're not going to be a film composer then. Or, you're, you know, you won't be able to work in film if you think that. Because um, it's, yeah, it's just like the number one thing you have to get over. Um, but if you can get over it and think of it as a sort of a different kind of collaboration, I'm not saying that you should, uh, you know, lose your voice or... Um, or feel compromised in in any way but um but if you can kind of get into that that spirit then it's the most rewarding thing but yes yeah. not ev not everyone can do it <laughs> yeah gosh that's really good that's so good So tell me, I mean, I think you've spoken to it, into it a little bit, but tell me what inspires and informs your work when you're doing what you're doing in the midst of all of this? I get really inspired by, I'm not an artist in any way. So, you know, I, I know that I couldn't be a musician or a director or, or a painter or anything. So, but I get all my inspiration from those things. And, and I think reading a good script is just like, amazing i mean i remember sitting down and reading and um john McLean had just sent me the script for slow west and i remember like going to the cafe and reading it just in one go and really falling in love with it it's it was it was brilliant it was perfect kind of from from that moment and immediately having the ideas sort of starting to to spin in your mind and that's such an exciting moment and i think i can get that from a conversation with a director or a writer or a musician you know if or and and a composer so i think i'm always looking out like that to or even if it's i just i just read a a memoir last week and i was like oh my god this would make the most amazing film and i know exactly how i'd want the music to be and the score and the, <laughs> so so i think I, yeah i look to other people's art for all of that inspiration Right. And I don't know if there's any connection here, but the fact that you studied history of art at university, whether that ability to sort of know how to research, to know how to look, to, to know what to look for. And then obviously you were surrounded by music and your father was an artist and your mum worked at Goldsmiths and your partner is also an artist. Do you feel like all of that has also impacted how you make some of your choices. Definitely. I think the biggest thing, and you know, not that I have necessarily used history of art um, professionally, the degree professionally, but but I am so pleased that I did it. I'm so grateful to you know all of that cultural knowledge because I think that's the thing is so it's making those connections, you know, knowing how painters and composers and choreographers and directors have all through the ages kind of like flowed together and informed each other and and yeah you're right the, the research knowing where just to look for a certain genre or or period um so yeah i'm so grateful i did that that degree and and still i think like every day i use the knowledge and experience from that in some way 
Mm. And also just because, because film directors are, you know, are, are generally so knowledgeable and, you know, and, and culturally informed that it's as important that you can sit down with, you know, with them and talk about an Agnes Martin exhibition that you've just seen uh, as much as it is, you know, the history of film and, and other films that have inspired them. So, so I, yeah, I've always find it useful. Right. And are there any films that perhaps you haven't been part of, but you watch the film and you just think, wow, the score, the music supervision, like the whole thing, you just watching it work together and you think, my gosh, that was just amazing. Totally. I mean, going, if I sort of think about maybe the films that I felt that about before I realised I felt that about. So a lot of the John Hughes films, like I just, I mean, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Breakfast Club and um, Sixteen Candles and all of that. And, you know, and I learned so much music from those, listen, you know, watching those films and those, like, like those kind of classic 80s films I totally love. And then I have to say a lot of TV now. I just... I just watched um, the second series of Sex Education and I just, I love that series. I think it's brilliant. And I think the music supervision is amazing. Matt Biffa's genius. And um, yeah, I, I feel that a lot. Under the Skin was such a massive moment, I think, in recent film scores for doing something so different and being really bold. I probably, try, I think I... I should really just watch film and TV on my own because I annoy everyone by getting like, oh my God, look, they put that, I wonder how much that cost and <laughs> the whole time. Like, oh, that's amazing. I can't believe they licensed that. That's so funny. I'm like that with um, gigs. Like if I'm watching some, like a band live on stage, I'm like, I start counting the number of people. I'm like, how much did they all cost? Like how, you know, you start doing all of these things in your head because it's your job, but it's impossible not to keep doing your job when you're watching the things, you know, you're watching the thing that you do. But I, I, I love that. I find actually that the, the recent film that I saw, Roma did that for me. I couldn't work out. I was like, why, what is happening with this score? Because it's like, there's no music, but there's music. And I, it's so effective. It was very effective. I have to admit, I didn't love Roma, but oh, tell me why. But, well, I think, I, think I, I, I thought it looked so beautiful, but in the end, I just, it just didn't move me in a weird way. I mean, there were specific some specific scenes that really moved me. Oh my god! I mean, I don't even have to elaborate on those. You know, or um, plot spoil those. And of course, you can't help but be just like just overwhelmed but um just generally I yeah it was too slow for me it was and I can do slow but I just yeah I think I struggled with it a little bit that's interesting no I and I love um I love the fact that that's the beauty of the arts isn't it we're not all meant to just love love everything because everybody loved it we're allowed to have opinions totally I mean it's like a, um uh I don't know if you've seen this film Baked um, that was oh. out last year and everyone I love and trust really loved it and I hated it <laughs> and and people keep referencing it to me and I'm like yeah I really did like it um, but then there are other ones like you know I keep just eulogizing about um, 
portrait of a lady on fire. I just think it was just amazing. It's so beautiful, beautiful use of music in that and just a gorgeous, gorgeous film. So, yeah. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. I was like that when Bright Star came out, the Jane Campion film. I love that film. I was obsessed with that film and I was telling everyone, you know, you must see it. And my friend of mine saw it. She's like, I hated it. Everyone was just so self-indulgent. I was like, but it was like watching a visual painting oh, and the, the singing, you know, that sort of choral sing. Oh, I just loved it. But, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> but tell me, what mistakes, what lessons have you learned that we could learn from? I think, I mean, other than some, some really practical ones, as in, I think I probably... Um, have been guilty of being of wanting to please too much and then and then um therefore kind of being like yeah that's going to be totally fine and sort of knowing it's not and then having to wait too long to say that it's not um but it was really just because i didn't want to let them down and and actually it's much better right up front to to be clear about things so that's a practical one but more generally, I'd say I've really realised that um, I shouldn't work on things that I'm not in love with. And, and it can be anything. It could be like the director. It doesn't have to be the entire thing. It could be like, I love the script, but the director's difficult or vice versa. But I've got to, like, I can't just take a job for the sake of a job. I've got to really love. It. and that's the same goes with composers like I just have to yeah be totally kind of creatively in love with them right that's really interesting um I'm I'm hesitant to ask this question because it always tends to go here but I'm going to ask it anyway um do you find being a woman in the space you're in have you felt a difference because I know for example there aren't a lot of female composers I don't know if there are a lot of music female music supervisors is it something that you felt the point that you made about pleasing I know that's something that women often talk about this feeling this need to please but would you just sort of speak into that a little bit the the statistics on women composers is terrible I mean it is like the worst below the line statistic I think in the whole of the film business it's mm. um I can't remember what it was last year but something like you know two out of the top 250 films was, was scored by women it's like it's it's bonkers and I'm really passionate about changing that there are amazing women composers obviously and um it's yeah so I, I'm really big on changing that and I feel that a lot but obviously not from my own I mean you know I'm not a composer so but on their behalf mm. interestingly I would say in music supervision it is pretty much 50 50 it is probably one of the most balanced gender statistics um in the business and you know and not often like in the music business often you get like yeah, it's very balanced, maybe at the, um, the more junior end, but as you rise up, it completely goes the other way. Whereas in music supervision, right the way from to the top, like some of the biggest names in music supervision are women. And so, and I, I sort of have a theory about it. I don't know whether it makes any sense, but um, 
I have a theory that it's because it's a fairly new job, role. I mean, within the history of cinema, let's say a hundred years of cinema, really music supervisor is like the last 20 years. Um, before that, you know, it was really like directors picking songs or whatever and producers clearing them. And, you know, it didn't, it wasn't this independent role. And therefore it has, so every other aspect, director, editor, composer, has like 80 years of men, it being mainly white older men. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this kind of doesn't. It doesn't have that long history of seeing, oh, it's only for this other kind of person. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so right from the beginning, it's like, yeah, a lot of, a lot of music supervisor women. And um, so I've never felt it in the music supervision side at all. Um, do you think it also has anything to do with the fact that you spend a lot of time negotiating? Between, Definitely. Tend to, I mean, these are generalizations. That's why I'm always hesitant, but women tend to be good at navigating these spaces, I think. I totally agree. I think, I think that, as you say, of course it is a generalization, but I think that women are kind of, natural PRs and sort of and diplomats and are and and that balance of you know finding a a way through without ruining something I think they're really good at it (laughs) but then why do you think there are so few composers then I think I mean and it's not just in film of course like it's in classical music or whatever as well And, and even in pop you see those figures you know it's not it, it, it it's not balanced um even though some of the greatest artists of all time you know it's like it's not not without um uh precedent but i just think it's historically you know it, historically it's it is a really tough job being a film composer and i maybe historically there were just these sort of assumptions that women have families they can't they can't put up with the there's never thinking your men have families and can't put up with the late nights and the <laughs> and the all night recording sessions but maybe there's a sort of of um prejudice about that and and literally because women didn't have those um role models um maybe they didn't think that it was their place to be you know not not that they need to be invited in but it it it, it is just that classic thing of if you don't see it mm. do you you could be it mm. um and i think that's why it's so important this year with hilda winning every award going yeah. that and and that she said you know and the way she dealt with with her speeches and saying such kind of positive things about hearing women's voices in in film um so it's definitely it is definitely changing and i look forward to the time when we don't have to talk about it anymore yeah and i think perhaps with everything what's that the rider that they keep talking about i know that Frances mcdormand spoke of when she won the oscar about having the, the a rider where you you make sure that you have diversity when you're making the the choices yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I, I've had um, women directors say to me, I would love to work 
with a woman proposal I don't even know where to find one and and you know those sorts of things where it's like it sounds so silly when you say it out loud but it's true you know you know the there are the sort of you know all the men working at a certain level that everyone knows those names and knows the work and but um you know it takes maybe it does take a little bit more digging to you know to find those female composers that you want for your project and maybe some people just aren't sort of going to take the time to do that but um it's def yeah it's definitely changing yeah and i, I think it's it's something that is changing everywhere but requires a level of intentionality like i um i share this story with with some friends but i remember i was working as like a session musician and somebody wanted me to play keys for a female singer and he said to me look i really had to fight for you because the management company didn't want another woman taking the spotlight from the singer and this was this is not like in the 80s we're talking recently and so even the mindset and these this management company um, would consider themselves progressive and forward thinking because of the kind of music they were putting out. But the fact that they thought having more than one woman on stage was a threat to the artist says how people are thinking about certain things. Yeah, so it's I, bonkers. It's, it's so bonkers and so ridiculous. But I, you know, I, I have seen it I, and I'm not the only one who has stories like this. So I also think it requires people being really intentional and saying, you know, we want to find a female composer and so on, because, you know, we need to create more diversity and, and, and having different people, you hear, you know, people bring different sounds to things. They bring a different interpretation and it adds to the beauty, you know? Totally. Also makes me love Prince even more for having all those years had his amazing female band. Yeah. I mean, well, Prince is just, yeah. it's like, we can't even start there. That's a whole yeah. other podcast. Yeah, exactly. That's like, yeah. Why we love Prince. Number one. <laughs> but leading on to my last question, what music are you listening to at the moment? It's such a funny time, isn't it? Because in, in lockdown, um, I've been, because I feel like I've been turning to like things that I'm nostalgic about a little bit, like a little sort of comfort listen. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so on the one hand, we're doing a lot of James Addiction and and like what I consider late but late um, Bob Dylan, but it's not really. But like things like Oh Mercy and from from the eighties. But and then I also end up obviously going into slightly uh, research mode on certain things. And so uh, I've been listening to a lot of Leonard Cohen for a particular reason and, and I've, I love him and I've you know listened to him for years but maybe maybe going a bit deeper than I had before which has been really really nice and and weirdly then uh, this was a particular song that I was listening to a lot memories and then I happened upon um Dave Parho and Alexis from Hot Chip did this really great cover of it the other day and I was like oh, that's, I love a good cover like mm. one that takes it in a totally like not a straight cover just a, like oh my god that's that song that's, we've done it brilliantly brought a whole new world to it so um yeah so a lot of that and then in terms of composers and listening to Rob Simonson a lot who I adore and his album Reveries and um and Ollie Coates, who I always 
love listening to. Um, yeah, and then I have a sort of, uh, on those, I literally have a Spotify playlist that's called Happy, for like those <laughs> days where you're like, you know, because you're so, your mood is so altered by what you're listening to, and yeah. and sometimes I'm like, it's a little bit like break glass in emergency, go to the Happy <laughs> playlist and just like have some random like Rod Stewart or something <laughs> that's, like, that's just guaranteed to make me laugh. <laughs> totally. I did that this weekend. Last weekend I did, I created a summertime playlist and it's just got loads of Roy Ayers on it because Roy Ayers just always makes me feel like uplifted. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, Lucy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot today, which is always what I love to learn something. (laughs) So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Lucy Bright. I hope the world of music supervision and the film industry has opened up to you a bit more. Why not learn more about what Lucy does by watching some of the films and TV she's worked on, details of which are in the blurb below. And as ever, you know what to do. Share, like, subscribe to the podcast on the SoundCloud and Insta platforms at holding up the ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can also donate. Just click the link below. Next week, I'll be joined by songwriter, producer, musical director and composer, Sarah DeCourcy. You know, we all have a skill set. It's very individual and specialist what we do because we're creatives of what's in our own head. So it's worth, if that's worth something like I get, I got very tired of hearing people say to me, oh, but this is going to be a good opportunity. You should do it for nothing. And it's like, well, I'll decide that. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) It's It's my career. I'll decide if this is a good opportunity for me, not you. Until next time.